Hello and welcome to the Racist IndyCar Podcast. My name is Jerry Hildebrand and joining me to get into the major storylines of the Indy 500 is the Racist American editor, Jack Benyon. I got to say, Jack, being in the race, I, felt, I, I ran into a bunch of guys after the race yesterday. And I think regardless of where anybody finished, there was a lot of people. So I, when you'd ask the question, hey, what happened to the race or how did you end up where you ended up? There was a lot of people that frankly just said, I don't really know. Like it just, we ended up where we ended up somehow at the end, whether that was good or bad. So um, excited to have you here to have watched it from the outside. Maybe you can give me a little insight on uh, on everything that went down. Yeah, there's something seriously wrong, JR, when it relies on me for insight in this podcast. That's when uh, we know oh, we've gone sure. totally off the rails and that something really is, uh, something really is going downhill. But yeah. Glad to see you here and uh, finish the race in, in the top 15. That's awesome. We'll, we'll get back onto that a little bit. I thought we'd just run down kind of the, the, the goings on of the race. Um, yeah, basically, let's do a recap. And for those listening that have tuned into the wrong podcast, if they didn't see the race, we'll kind of outline what happened. So that's what we kind of normally do. <laughs> Helio Castroneves won the 105th run-in of the Indianapolis 500 after passing Alex Pillow with a handful of laps remaining. Just before the two of them caught traffic, nice move from Helio there. He knew that traffic was going to give him a big boost and made his move at the perfect time to take advantage of that. So that was awesome. Uh, many big players were took out during the race, starting with the pole sitter, Scott Dixon, who ran out of fuel and lost a lap on the first pit stop. So he was the big favourite pole sitter, kind of out of contention almost immediately, uh, and then came back into contention a little bit later on with a bit of strategy, but that didn't quite work out for him. So he ended up in 17th. Uh, who else have we got? Connor Daly led the most laps of the race. First time he was leading the Indy 500 as a, as a kind of hometown hero. So he was very pleased with that. But uh, he was on an off-sync strategy with Renus VK. The two of those took those Ed Carpenter racing cars, took turns to lead and used a lot of, a lot of fuel while they were out front leading. So that strategy kind of uh, didn't really work out particularly well for them. And the, the worst part of Daly's strategy was crashing into the errant wheel of Graham Rahal after his crash coming out of the pits. Um, his... He was released with a, a loose left rear, crashed into the outside of the turn one wall. He was lucky to not be hit by anyone in, in that sense, but uh, that wheel that came off was then hit by Connor Daly. And the only way I can describe it is if anyone listens to the podcast has watched Rocket League uh, kind of things on, on the PlayStation or on the Xbox or whatever kind of console that you use. Or maybe if you've seen a Demolition Derby, that's kind of what that reminded me of because it was like almost cartoon Connor Daly hitting the wheel and the wheel going like flying in the air after he was hit at 150 miles an hour, which was completely bonkers. And to be honest, he was lucky to come out of that, you know, unscathed. So we're really happy about that. Um, and yeah, Renus BK um, was held up in his last stop, which kind of stopped him from being in contention as well, as well as his kind of strategy not working out perfectly. And then we had Simon Pagano pulled off an epic comeback to come back from 25th to third passing Patricia Award, who had to lift at turn two because he was going to hit the wall. So Simon got a, a good run on him. So I think that covers the key events and the players that we want to kind of talk about in the podcast. And I wanted to run down some of the stats as well, because I thought it was quite fun. Um, Arnie Schrieben at IndyCar does a fantastic job of digging out all these marvellous stats and providing the the IndyCar media. And I thought it'd be a good chance to, to run through some of them because some of them are really cool. And you know how much I love stats, JR. So let's have a little, have a look at what we've got. Obviously it was Maya Shank Racing's first victory in IndyCar. Not a bad place to do it, JR, you know getting your first win uh, in IndyCar at the Indy 500. Not, yeah, I think you'll accept that, you know. Yeah, it's all right. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. Helio is the first driver ever to win a 500 after leaving Team Penske, which is an absolutely bonkers start. I think it says more about 
you know, people sticking around at Penske for so long because it's such a great place to be, obviously, that kind of um, weathers the stat a little bit, let's say. But also, yeah, I think you'll for, take that. for no one to have left there and, and never won the race afterwards is, is pretty spectacular. It's the first time a zero-something number has won. So Helio was running zero-six in the race. That's the first time that's ever happened in Indy 500 history. It was Honda's 14th win, which puts them second all-time behind Offie, who were on 27. Um what else have we got? We've got Will Power's eight race streak of leading a lap came to an end. Also, we had 35 lead changes. So I wasn't far off on the pod last week with my guesstimation of what we were going to see in the race, which I'm very proud of because I don't really get uh, stats you know, predicted properly very often. Um, and yeah, JR, from last week, you know that I love a stat from where people start, where they win the race from. That's one of my favourite Indy 500 categories of stats. So uh, if we're talking about eighth on the grid, which is where Helio Castanova has come from, the last person to win from there was Kenny Brack back in 99. And before that was the spin and win, Danny Sullivan in 85. So they're, they're the two other instances of the race being won from eighth on the grid. And so there's some wild stats from the Indy 500. I'm sure you watched a race and you, um, like I said, if you didn't, you were listening to the wrong podcast. But before we move on to, to Helio and to Alex and all of the other kind of lead players, let's have a little chat with you about your race first, JR. Give us a brief overview of your race in the number 14 AJ for your Enterprises Chevy. There you go. I've done the I've done the little team readout for you there. Um, but yeah, strong. Well, I was in the number one AJ Foyt Enterprises. Oh, did I say, I said 14, Tony Stewart. That's what it was. Do you know what? I was you typing did. out Tony Stewart afterwards, which I'm going to ask you about later on. And I put 14 in because my mind's just gone. Tony Stewart, 14. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, the number one. That's, um, that's uh, a bad mistake from me. But there you go. Top 15 finish in the fastest Indy 500 ever. So that's not a bad going. Yeah. I mean, we, we got caught up in that whole first pit sequence. So a lot of, a lot of guys races one way or the other kind of went sideways. Obviously the the big players being Scott and, and Alex, I guess in that, uh, closed pit scenario. So we were in the, you know, we had made up a few spots, we were saving fuel. Um, and in one, in, in those kind of exchanges, typically yellow comes out between when cars have started to pit and everybody else has pitted. Typically, that sort of favors the cars that have managed to stay out, and and we just we a bunch of us there was eight of us I think that ended up just getting totally caught out by how long they stayed under closed pit there. Uh, so we lasted I think three laps under caution, and then just and we're you know hitting hitting the mileage number doing that, but then eventually had to pit under closed pit, um, and we sort of got a little bit of the double whammy there, which is. The way the rule, I think, used to work, or the way our team had kind of understood it, um, was that you come in and if you just get a splash of fuel, that's sort of a penalty enough, basically, that you'll end up coming out at the end of the line and then have to make your full-service pit stop anyway. So we did that rather than just making a full-service pit stop. And so because we ended up hitting twice in that whole sequence and then everybody got penalized and put to the back... That closed that pitted under the closed pit anyway. Then we ended up all the way at the back of that whole sequence, basically. So we sort of lost all of the ground that we had made up, and then also because of the closed pit situation, lost all of the potential advantage over making it longer on fuel, basically, than than a whole bunch of other other drivers. So that just you know, it's it's just sort of luck of the draw in terms of the way that those things work out, but. Um, definitely was a, an early sort of screw up in our race. And so 
then we were all we got shuffled all the way back to the back started kind of working our way back up towards the you know 20th or something like we were between 20th and 25th uh, after a couple of stops and then just had one had one slow pit stop and at that point it was crazy just thinking there are going to be guys that are only going to that are going to run this race basically on like four four stops or maybe five stops or something at that point just because of how much mile, how much fuel economy everybody was getting. The leaders were going really slow, so it backed up the entire field. And I ran a whole stint running laps at like 2.11 in the middle of the race. Um, and so we were, at that point for us, there basically just wasn't a strategic option to kind of, to get far enough off sequence to do anything about it. And so... Um, what ended up actually so the way that we from there i was impressed and and sort of pleased as as was the team just to be able to claw our way back up to 15th from being that far back and and not getting the benefit of any strategy along the way um you know we were able basically just to pick guys off i was fortunate that the car was actually really good car was fast Uh, it was racy if i'd have been able to cycle up to the front it was definitely a car that I could have stuck around up there with, which was nice to have underneath you, at least, you know, we kind of knew that on carb day, this, a little bit of it is the, the new package that, that everybody's running from an aero perspective. The cars are basically just making more downforce this year, or there's, there's the option to make more efficient downforce. Uh, we've talked about that in, in some of the earlier pods, just the new little bits and pieces. Um, but then at, at AJ Foyt racing, we just sort of found what, found what I was looking for certainly in the car and um, was able to work through a bunch of guys in those pit exchanges, uh, good in and outs and, and, and basically, and this was, I think sort of true just throughout the, the field and throughout the race was if you had a good car and you were in a situation where the cars in front of you are kind of in clean air, then not in just this giant train, then you could actually make some passes, which has, frankly, even in that situation, has been hard to do over the last couple of years. So kudos to IndyCar to kind of finding a little bit of a balance in some of those things to, to make it racier. And, um, and then at the end, it was, I think we all went through this one stint in the race where everybody was getting really tremendous fuel economy. And so everybody basically went into those last two stints. There was a yellow with you know, 80, 80 ish to go, um, to think that you're going to make it to the end on one stop at that point would normally be like ludicrous, but we'd all just gone through this stint that maybe you could get, if you'd got a little bit better fuel economy, like you could potentially like under green, which everybody ended up being wrong that like you couldn't actually do that. But we sort of gambled on that, uh, and and it was interesting because everybody just ended up on a slightly different version of the same, you know, two stop strategy at that stage. But uh, we were able to get out and sort of get out in clean air, and and again, they're like, you know, the car just ripped off. I was flat chat for the last ten laps of that last stint before the final before the final stop, running like. 220s lap after lap after lap after lap and that that helped us basically 
as all of those, as everybody is cycling through the pits, wherever they, however, whichever way they kind of leaned on that, um, you know, fuel mileage game, um, just in essence, pick guys off just on outright speed, kind of on the overcut basically. And, um, you know, ended up 15th. So in terms of the result, nothing special, but it was nice at least to have a car that I felt like, okay, I can do something with this. And, uh, that's always kind of a, it always at least makes you feel like, okay, we, we were out there and it, for some portions of the race, had some fun, you know, if you're not going to win the race, it's nice to at least get out there and go race. For sure. I guess if we kind of look at the the kind of pre-race talk about the aero situation that you kind of alluded to briefly, I mean, it looked like the top four or five cars were going to be able to pass quite easily. And then further back, it was going to be a bit more difficult, but I got, I kind of got the idea that it was quite heavily impacted by fuel saving as well at the same time, because it obviously it, it looked like that was the case that the top four could pass freely whenever they wanted and that everybody else further back was, was struggling a bit. But, but I also kind of, I watched on board with, with Dixon. Um, I started the race with power to watch his first two laps. If you've not looked at those yet, JR, and you get a chance to find that on online somewhere, go and look. Cause it's, it is awesome. Um, he made up so many spots at the start there and it was really aggressive. And it was what you were talking about last week on the pod, actually about positioning yourself on restarts and at the start of the race and that kind of insight you gave us into, into that and and power just kind of reflected. It was almost like he'd listened to the podcast, which is probably not likely, but anyway, I think where I'm going with this is it, I, I think there could have been more passing further back in the field. I think a lot of people were fuel saving and watching strategy as opposed to, necessarily not being able to move around which was the case last year is that something you would agree with and you were kind of moving around in those pockets in in those kind of positions so is that what you kind of experienced as well yeah i'd say it's sort of a mixed bag that it's definitely it was definitely still a situation where as we predicted that once you're certainly once you're seven or eight cars back in a train and there were big parts of the race where it was literally just like a 30 whatever car train um that at that point, it is still difficult to difficult to pass. Um, I, for me, one of the things that definitely factored into that was after the first couple of stops got all jumbled up, you know, we were on the kind of at the tail end of the whole thing, but around a bunch of other really fast cars. Like I was stuck behind Dixon and Kanan and Rossi and cars that are definitely fast enough to be up front that doesn't help your cause basically. Like if those guys aren't, I'm, I'm sort of, I was behind those guys thinking, okay, I need, I need the three of you to start picking off the slower cars that are in front of us here so that I can get to those cars that, that maybe all of us are better than, but, but it's really hard to pass another pretty fast car in front of you just when you're stuck, because you kind of get, you get in this accordion, like ebb and flow down the straights that, everybody's backing up through turn one and then re-accelerating through two onto the straight. So you just, you don't get, you're not catching everybody out, anybody out in terms of where their momentum is around the track. The other thing that definitely did factor in, certainly once we got a couple of stints in was fuel saving. And that just becomes your priority at that stage. There was one point in the race where my guys came over. It was, it was when it was during that particularly slow stint that everybody went really long. Um, my guys came over the radio. We're just like, okay, if you go to rich one, like, can you get by guys here? Could you, 
could you leapfrog three or four guys potentially because everybody's going so slow? And right when I switched over to give that a shot, because I thought, I thought to your point, the answer to that might be yes. If all of these guys are fuel saving and we're going this slow, maybe I can catch a few guys. It doesn't take much basically to catch a few guys out. And uh, right as I did that, some cars peeled off and suddenly we're running, you know, two eighteens again and it goes away. So uh, I think that there was, there was definitely some of that. I imagine if, if it wasn't just a constant back and forth of guys passing each other up front, that's simply just because you get in fuel safe mode for sure. Um, But I think it's, you know, when we talk about just the racing here at Indy, you know, in with this package that, you know, we've, that we've had since 2018, this universal aero kit, it's just been creates for a dirtier airflow around the track. That's why we've ended up in the situation that once you're four or five cars back or whatever it is every year, depending on the conditions that it's particularly tough and you just don't really see any passing that further back in the pack, you know, you've basically got two options. Either you, add power and take away downforce and just make it harder generally, you're going to end up with the whole field stringing out more and it being, it's going to be less close together, but you'll see more passing just because there'll be a greater variety in terms of where people are at and how people are setting up their cars. It basically gets harder. So you'll see more passing for that reason. Or you do what IndyCar has done here, which is, sort of add down for us just to make it easier to run closer together. And so I think given that it's not easy to not easy to add horsepower artificially at this point in terms of where the engines are and all that kind of stuff. And that we've got, um, you know, we've got this aero package that can't reasonably be changed that much tires that would have to be completely redesigned to strip a bunch of downforce away for super speedways and still keep the cars drivable. Uh, you know, I think this is this is the best that this package has probably looked in terms of being able to actually get out. I mean, I, and and my experience in the race, I think, reflected that, that it was, it was like, okay, I've got a car that's doing what I want it to do. I can actually get out there and do something with it in uh, in the right circumstances. And you saw that, I think, throughout the field. I think feeding off that, the, the, the kind of one thing I wanted to add that I found quite incredible was just going back to the fact that it was the fastest 500 ever and the fact that the the leaders were backing up the pace so much and there was so much fuel saving going on in the mid pack and yet it was still the fastest race. And obviously there wasn't a lot of cautions and that, that kind of played into it. But also at the same time, I think it's, I think it's really important to mention at this point that, you know, this is an oval and it might look less sophisticated than, you know, a particularly complicated street circuit might look, but you know, in, in other series, I don't like to compare to Formula One all the time, but in at the start of a Formula One race, the strategists know how long the tyres are going to last roughly in the conditions. They've got two or three tyre options. You know, there's there's two or three strategy options to run to the end of the race. You know, in the 500, there was hundreds of options that you could have pulled out in the race there, reacting to different things that were happening. And, and you said, you know, at one point you reacted to try and pick up the pace and then a couple other people picked up the pace as well and did the same thing. And, you know, the... You are limited in sensible options, but the number of strategy options are much wider and the the cars are are at an elite level where we're going faster than we've ever been before. So these strategy decisions where you may have got away with it in previous years, just the standard of the field and the quality of the, the kind of guys involved is just, you know, it's just, it's just making it very difficult to try and, uh, you know, 
find different ways to to take advantage of, of the situations that are offered to you. So, And I think that the other thing that I would add from that perspective, just being in the last bunch of 500s, is I feel like the beginning of the race and some of the strategic decisions that you make just in those first couple of stops, it's frequent that there has been an early yellow recently, that that has tended to have a huge impact on just the rest of the event at that point which you think it's 500 miles that there's going to be plenty of stuff that happens, but it's just ended up working out that if you're on the, if you're on your back foot from the beginning or you kind of get, or you either, you know, get helped out by an early yellow, like there was a bunch of guys that cycled to the front that then just ended up staying up there all day because all the guys that got cycled to the back never ended up with another option to refigure that out or for the for the pack to get jumbled again to your point there was a bunch of different scenarios during the race where choosing to do this versus that was maybe the difference between how you how you ended up with the cars that are sort of more right around you but um it's been interesting just to see how much those early decisions end up impacting the final result. And, and that's become a bit of a trend recently in part because of a, how few cautions the races have had over the last couple of years, this one in particular, basically besides grant, I mean, the only incidents we had were all in pit lane or to do with something that was, that happened in pit lane. When we think about Graham's deal, which as a total side note, that is probably I didn't I didn't talk to Graham about it I didn't see him afterwards but that's probably one of the scariest things in the back of your mind as a race car driver is having a problem on pit out and knowing that you're just going to be helplessly floating out onto the racetrack going slower than everybody else is going so I'm sure he was not psyched about that and uh, I'm I'm just glad to see like you said that he didn't manage to collect somebody as he it out. I mean, that's every time that's happened, uh, or any anytime there's been an incident when something like that has happened, it's been a catastrophic outcome. So I'm glad that everybody. I'm glad that he ended up being okay, and that and that everybody else ended up being okay. Connor included with the with the wheel flying through the air. But um, just generally, I think that you you mentioned the speed of the race. You know, it's it's uh, it is pretty crazy when you think about just how quickly the whole thing got done. I mean, we were, I was sitting there, we were halfway through the race and I was like, Oh my God, like we don't, we don't have any, we don't really have any more. We don't, we don't have any like bullets left here. You know, this is, we're just going to, we're, I'm going to be here and we got to figure out how to just start picking some guys off. Cause this race is going to be over in a minute. You know, Yeah, it felt like last year we had things like Pelot and Ericsson into the wall and they, they were just kind of symptomatic of, tiny errors running a little bit too high on the track with you know the tires going away from you towards the end of a stint whereas we saw guys getting close to the wall yesterday and I'm sure it was pretty hairy by the time you got to the you know right to the end of the stint on the tires but I think the added downforce just gave you that extra bit of kind of security that you know it wasn't too much of an issue and we didn't see anyone have that kind of issue during the race but obviously this was your first 500 with with uh, with Foyt so how do you kind of reflect on that experience because you know I guess you know you've come here to to win the race and and that's not happened and you know you kind of have to make peace with that but it's been a you know from from what you've said on the pod so far and and the chats we've had you know it sounds like it's been a, a pretty epic experience to to drive for super techs and and have Tony Stewart in the pits as well and you know the 
I don't think you've missed out on anything by by coming to the team and it seems like you've you've settled in well so how do you kind of reflect on the experience yeah I think it's 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 been a great experience it's always it's always interesting and and fun in its own way to join a new group of guys and join a new squad so that was that was enjoyable just in its own right to get to know some new people and work with some new folks uh, still a lot of familiar faces for me a lot of the guys on my crew are guys that I've worked with a number of times throughout the course of my career I've been lucky to form a form a group of guys that whether they're full-time or not can you know when when they know that I'm going to be in the car they'll jump in and uh and I trust them know that they'll do a good job and and vice versa so that's always uh that's always a huge plus going somewhere new is just knowing that you've you've got some guys that you can lean on um I I really enjoyed the engineering group and and working with Seb and Charlie and and Dalton over the course of it, I think that it was reasonable. I know that we've talked about this a little bit. That that particularly Bordet was a little bit critical of just adding adding two cars, let alone one for for the five hundred for this group. That was definitely a you know a, a pretty a pretty significant ask. My deal came together really late. The car was getting built like well while the open test was happening still. So. That could have, I, those are the types of things that can definitely distract from sort of the task at hand. But in the experience that I had, obviously, we ended up being quick for the most part within the team. We ended up being quick all month. I think that speaks just to the build quality and the spec of, of what they were able to put together in a pretty short period of time and the guys, guys that they were able to put around it. For me, it was it was definitely an enjoyable experience. And I think the fact that we were pretty competitive, at least among the rest of the group, helped helped me have a good relationship with AJ over the course of the month. Uh, I can't I can imagine that that could have gone pear shaped kind of quickly. He's definitely just as competitive as ever, and you can you can see that first and foremost being around the garage with him. But what a cool experience for sure to to be able to spend a month of May with AJ Foyt driving his tribute livery and have tony stewart come out it's same it, the same thing struck me with tony frankly that he was totally just in tune i guess with everything that was going on and and it was interesting we went to we were all at an event together on saturday night before the race and he went up and tony went up and talked larry was kind of larry foyt aj's son who's the i guess co-owner with aj of the team was emceeing this event and interviewed all of us drivers just talking about you know the race and and whatever else our cars and our experience that far thus far then tony went up there and you know larry was asking him would you get back in one of these things does there does that appeal to you blah 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 and it was interesting how how much different tony felt like this is now from when he drove here and it, and it is different. I mean, we know that it's different, but it was interesting just the appreciation or I guess the, the sort of respect for the fact that this is a totally different ball game and how hyper competitive it is and how much you need to extract. He, he was almost coming from the point of view that like for him to come and just think that he could get in one of these cars, he'd probably embarrass himself. Like that was his, that was clearly his, I don't, I don't know that I think that's what would happen, but he was coming at it from that perspective, which I thought was interesting. So to have him around the garage, sometimes you have guys walk in, come in and just like you'd think if they haven't been around IndyCar, they don't know exactly 
the ins and outs of what's making the cars fast or what's making them racy or not, or what the hard, what the little things that are hard to do are that really matter. And, and he was totally up to speed on all of that stuff. So cool to have some racers, some obviously like OG legit racers around. And, and like you said, you, you don't, one guy walks out of here with the right result, with the result they're looking for every year. You can't really expect for that to be your, your outcome, but uh, for what it was worth this year for me, it was, it was definitely a good time and, uh, you know, gave me, gave me some juice to, to think about what to do from here, you know? Awesome. I think we'll have to save that for a whole podcast on its own, I think. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's move on to the wider race then and to speak a little bit about Helio and, and the win there. He obviously becomes a full-time winner, joins that club with Alan Senior, AJ Foyt and Rick Mears. Um, Rick Mears was the last to win a fourth race and that was back in 1991 which JR was before I was born believe it or not that's uh, I think that sums up how difficult it is to do something like what Helio has done and you know to think that it's not been done since 1991 just people need to appreciate what an achievement it is that he's managed to do it because of that fact really Um does it make him the the best of his generation? Do you think, uh, at Indy at least? Well, yeah. I mean, if we're going to count all four, technically, he, you know, Paul Tracy has won an Indy five hundred. But um, and all, all kidding aside, the uh, I yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard to argue with that. Basically, for for uh, for for where we're at, and he's Elio has been right there in a position to win the race a number of times. I think within the paddock you still look to scott dixon and say this is the guy that that really does just from start to finish i think well i think about it, i guess it more in my generation you know over the last 10 years kind of this era this this really current modern era of indycar racing scott's been the guy but but then you look at it and he's only won one of these things so yeah while he's up front all the time you could make that same argument basically for elio elio's been up front and in a position to win this probably as frequently as scott has over the last 10 years and this is you know so for both of them it's been a little while since they since they were actually either of them were in victory lane the but there's there's no doubt about it that for the the sort of irl era of indycar that Penske has just absolutely dominated and that Elio for the most part has been, you know, the, the, the front man of that organization when it comes to being quick here at Indy, he still does some things a little differently than everybody else and manages to make it work, knows exactly what he's looking for, has the absolute most supreme degree of confidence that he can get out here and, and win the race. So, when you factor all those things in, it's, it's just a, it, it, you, you really can't, there's nobody else that fits that bill in terms of who's here. And for him to come here, you mentioned earlier in the pod that he's the first ex Penske driver to win an Indy 500 that you look at, I, that's, I mean, that, and that honestly, I think is kind of the beautiful thing about IndyCar at this point is that we're now at a place where we've talked at length about how lousy Penske did here this, this month. Um, but uh, the flip side of that is just to, to, to sit there and say how good everybody else has become and that you, you could plunk into, you could put a good guy with a good engineer and a good strategist 
at any of these teams potentially, or, or at half of the teams on the grid and have a really genuine shot at winning the race. And so, uh, that was, that's, that I think is really cool to see, uh, super psyched for, for Shank and those guys and, and impressive when you just look at it, when you look at Elio jumping into a new, a new deal with people that he doesn't really know. Uh, he's, he's, there was not even, it didn't appear that there was even a, thought in his mind about the fact that he's no longer racing for Roger here. He was just here to do the job and he did it. So that's pretty cool. How do you think, I'm curious what you think uh, about how this affects Meyer Shank racing moving forward. We know Elliot, we're going to see Elio on the grid at some other races later this year. Uh, he was, he was my bus lot neighbor in the, in the motorhome lot. So he's definitely just in, in kind of sitting there BSing with him a little bit. He's, he's keen to get back to racing full time. Uh, here in the IndyCar series. What do you think this looks like going forward for those guys? I think to to kind of look at how it impacts moving forward, we should also look at the kind of past few years and kind of summarize that for for maybe some of the listeners who aren't kind of au fait with Mike Shank racing and how it's all come about. And I think Mike Shank, obviously a brilliant sports car team owner who's kind of come from the proper grassroots of motorsport doing Formula Ford and, and stuff like that back in the day and, you know, graduated to winning the, the Daytona 24 hours with his, with his own team, which was a phenomenal achievement in itself. But in the turn of the, you know, the turn of the 2010s wanted to enter IndyCar and do the Indy 500, obviously, because he'd gone there as a kid and had a, had a great love of the speedway. But for, for many reasons, it didn't come off until 2017 when Jim Meyer got involved. And obviously, Jim Meyer, people will know from Sirius XM Radio and has some connections to the Liberty Media, the Formula One team owner as well. He came in in 2017 and kind of really provided a lot of that back in that that team needed. And that coincided with, you know, bringing Jack Harvey in and get into the Indy 500 um, and they increased the number of races they did each year following that. So they did six races, then 10, then two years after and then for 2020, he went full-time with an Andretti deal, which was probably one of the best deals that's been signed in IndyCar in recent years. I think many people will argue, and I'm sure I can see you're nodding your head. I know you'll agree with me, that to, to get the kind of the resource that Andretti Autosport has, you know, they get the cars from them, they get the engineering support. So they get many of the benefits of running as part of Indy, if you call it an eight-car team, basically, this year, because they've had two Meyer Shank cars, and then they've had access to the six Andretti cars as well. And then for the rest of the season... They've got Jack Harvey and then they've got four full-time Andretti guys as well. So there's there's five cars in the stable. So loads of data. They get good cars that they know are going to be turned out well and to, to a standard that is at the top of IndyCar. Um, and it's it's just a, a brilliant deal all around for them. I just really think they've gone about every step of this. They've never bitten off more, they can, more than they can chew. That's Mike Shank's sort of MO really. You know, Jim Myers admitted that he wanted to throw a bit more money at this program and, you know, do things a little bit quicker. And Mike was like, no, we can we can eat up some money real quick here if we spend too much money and do this the wrong way. So I love how they've gone about everything. They've done it in a really cool way. Um, and and I just think we're coming to a bit of a crossroads now, which is going to be really interesting to see. And that is, I've kind of investigated this on the race's website. So you can read about this on the, on the website if, you, if you're looking for some follow-up content from the Indy 500. But it's it's interesting that obviously Meyershank Racing are now regularly competing with Andretti. They're not just a one car team that's turning up and, you know, every now and again, putting in a decent result. They should have had a better result last year when their qualifying average with Jack was 8.8. And then, you know, they finished 13th in the championship, I think it was. And there was many reasons for that, but a a lot of bad luck and no driver or team likes to put things down to bad luck. But I think the number of incidents Jack Harvey had last year that were out of his control were, you know, that for me, that qualifies bad luck. So 
he's some similar instances this year, really, but still the performance is very high. And, you know, now the team's won the Indy 500. So uh, Mike Shank confirmed that there's talks ongoing with Andretti to renew this deal. And I just think that's quite unusual because, you know, Mike Shank now regularly in a position to start beating Andretti on the track. And, you know, what what does Andretti get out of that? You know, it's it's a, it's an interesting kind of scenario to to kind of play out if we look two, two or three years down the line. And I suppose... If we get to that point, you know, my shank might want to, you know, take things in house and, and and go down that route. But the two seem very happy with each other at the minute. Andretti and my shank both, you know, it's very harmonious. And as as I just said, Mike's in talks with with Andretti to extend this deal, and it seems like everything's harmonious. But just looking at it from the outside, it just seems unusual that <laughs> that that my shank can take this machinery and beat Andretti, and Andretti are happy with that. You know, just see from the outside, it seems odd. Jeff. Well, I guess to answer the question, the simple answer to the question of what does Andretti get out of this is they get paid to do this, so they get sure. they get sure. they get some cash flow. And <laughs> but you're right; it's it's been interesting over the last we'll just say like 18 months or something at this point that, um, that Jack's look, Jack's been maybe the best Andretti car. If you're just to lump them all together more often than not, if you're just looking at, I, practice. I wrote this, I wrote this in my feature. I wrote this in my feature and then I deleted it. Cause I thought, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can really say that because obviously they've had, I'll, I'll, I'll say it for you that it's definitely crossed my mind just watching the races. And it's been a little bit like, Ooh. Oh, but I think I'm, if you really dug into the stats, I'm not sure that you'd. I'm not sure that the you know 27 car is going to find what they're looking for here. That the other the other thing that I would say just to just to sort of pile on to all of that briefly is that Mike Shank is one of the best dudes in the whole paddock. So I'm super just happy for him. I don't know him that well, but I'm really happy for him because he's highly respected he's made decisions he's made good decisions throughout his his career you know just as a team owner uh worked with a lot of great people and and i think the biggest uh the most respect that i you know or or the thing that i respect the most is that all of the people that i know that have ever worked with mike whether they're still working with him or not just love the guy so I think that reflects that that says that tells you everything you need to know about about Mike Shank. But that I was I spoke with him actually this off season uh, briefly just about his deal with Andretti. I was trying to understand how this worked because there were some situations where we I was in discussions with teams about potentially doing something similar. And and he was totally forthcoming about the the whole thing. Like he told me exactly how their whole deal worked and was willing to offer up like, if you need me to explain this to somebody else so that, you know, you can make this happen, I would be happy to do it because this for us makes total sense. It's, we get everything that we need out of doing this. It would be very difficult to be this competitive without this situation. So to your point, it is a, sort of symbiotic relationship between the two organizations. And and I, I hope for Mike's sake that they continue to do this and, and continue getting it done. Uh, I think, like you said, the, the, the number might go up on the Andretti side just to make sure they're getting, they're getting what they need out of it because they're also occasionally getting beat, which I'm sure they, they don't love. But, uh, but yeah, just a, a great group and, and super happy for those guys. Just moving away because, 
I'm sure everyone who's listening watched the race and, and got a lot of the kind of reaction from Helio and, and the team, you know, across that kind of result and saw him climbing the fence and, and Mike Shank climbing the fence as well and the whole team and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of want to move away from that for a second and, and talk a bit about Alex Pelot. And I'm interested kind of what you felt about his performance because, I've, again, I've written some some kind of follow-up content on, on the race's website about Alex and I, I think we've kind of framed it as, um, you know, the the kind of snatching victory from the claws of defeat, if you like, because f- for Alex, obviously no one wants to finish second in the Indy 500 and it's it's a difficult situation where your your mind as a driver will always focus back to the fact that you were so close to winning it as opposed to, I've done a fantastic job to finish second. And, you know, that's always kind of the way the human mind is built, isn't it? It's just how we, it's just how we do things. But for Alex, there's so many positives to take out of, of this race. And obviously he crashed out of the race last year and didn't crash in this race. So that's a, that's a big positive. Obviously he's learned from his mistakes from last year. And, and I asked him, does he feel like he stepped up his performance this year? And he, he definitely does. It's interesting that last year, for people who've not heard this on the podcast before, but the, the Indy 500, even though he crashed out of the race, was a big reason why Ganassi decided to sign him last year and took the chance on him. And it was because at that point, he'd only done one oval and it was the one day at Texas, the, the one day event that started the season last year. So he, he did a fantastic job there, all things considering. And then across the 500, obviously made the fast nine with with Dale Coyne and, and did a fantastic job there. And, and that was kind of what impressed Ganassi into taking him on. But yeah, I, I'm kind of interested because... Alex has kind of raised his reputation. He's learned a lot about racing at the front of the 500 and from Helio, who's obviously, you know, one of the best people you could dice with for a hundred laps or so learning what he's doing and how he's doing it. And, you know, I don't think he's going to let people past him as easily as he kind of let that whole, obviously he didn't let Helio past easily, but I think he would do things differently if he went back and played it out in his, if he had the benefit of hindsight. But yeah, just so many positives, I thought, and he's leading the championship by 36 points now, which is another you know, stupid that the Indianapolis 500 awards double points in my view, but that's a whole different conversation for another time. But how did you rate Alex Polo in a, in a long and waffling question? Obviously really highly at this point, it's, it's hard not to, he's, he's shown that he has a short memory and which is something that you really need as a race car driver to run up front consistently. You're going to have bad days at places like this. He's had a couple of them and they don't seem to have phased him even remotely. So that's always cool to see his, his attitude to me just seems very that's actually that, that just that short sort of short memory is something that just strikes me about him whenever I see him interviewed or, or talking like he's just you, you just get a sense that he's he's got a lot of belief in himself and in what he's doing and what's going on, basically that it's all kind of rolling in the right direction and it's just going to keep getting better and he's going to keep getting faster and being around Scott Dixon, I think as a teammate, I have to imagine plays a bit of a role in that because Scott, I think is one of the most underrated or under it's, or I guess I would say one of the things that I think is most underappreciated about Scott is how much he's, always learning and figuring out how to do new things differently in the car, always evolving with the car. Every time there's an update or whatever, Scott ends up being the guy that's, that's at the front again. And so I think that's, that's gotta be just good energy to be around, I think. And, and, and Alex has shown that he's, he's already shown that he's, he's kind of in that, in that ballpark and in that window in terms of how he thinks about what he's doing. So for sure, just watching, I, I did watch the last few laps on the replay, and and you'd think that okay, there's 
that is, like you said, going to be a situation that Alex replays in his head a few times just to kind of think, how could I have done that differently? I'm sure the difference between the way that Alex thought about his race and Pagano ending up in third is could not be more opposites, right? Simon coming from where he was coming from and vaulting up the order there throughout the race and then racing those guys hard at the end. He got by Pato and was, I mean, was, was going to pass Alex. Like if there had been another lap, Simon would have finished second because he was on his way to passing him across the start finish line. But those are just the types of things he's early in his career and he knows that and he's in a, he's in a, great position i i would i would honestly just go back to um his comments at barber at the beginning of the year basically no i don't i don't feel the pressure of being on one of the best teams this just makes me feel like i can go out and kick ass every weekend basically that i'm driving for one of the best teams and so i think if those little snippets of insight that we've gotten into his like psyche over the last particular the last six months makes me think that there's no reason that he's not going to be back in this exact same spot a little better knowing a little more about how this works and ready to take advantage of it at Chip Ganassi racing. Who's proven to be as good as anybody here, you know, consistent with, from a consistency point of view over the last bunch of years. I think there's perhaps maybe a bit of a misconception about Ganassi in the sense of the way it's structured in that obviously Dixon's been there forever and is constantly winning. And I think, people maybe think that the team is geared towards supporting Dixon overly than maybe more than it is. And I think it's been ripe for the last few years for someone who's a motivated, young, talented driver to come in and really just basically what we would say in the UK, give it the beans, basically. <laughs> um, but but properly take advantage of the opportunity that's there, of, of the machinery that's there and build on that and I think Alex is just the the kind of the the person they've been waiting for for a little while not to underrate any of the drivers that have come into the team in the past few years but I think Alex is a of, an, of a higher standard and of, of a kind of race winning championship caliber standard that has come in there and proven that it's not all about Dixon and that the, the team is not geared in a way that no one else can be successful it's just a very competitive series Dixon's a you know, we can't we can't say how much high you know how highly we rate Dixon um, as a driver, and chances are he is going to dominate in a team because he is at such a high level because he's that good. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it's the fact that they build around him so much and they you know they prioritise him too much. I think it's more to do with the fact that the right person hasn't come in there to shake things up, and I think that's what we're seeing. Anyway, Jr. Is there anyone else that you kind of picked up on during the race that you kind of wanted to talk about? And uh, I mean, we've done a very quick whistle stop tour of the 500 so far, and we'll do some more next week when we talk about listeners' questions, which I'll kind of get to in a minute. But yeah, is there, is there anyone else you kind of wanted to highlight? Anyone else that you wanted to talk about in the in the pod? No, I would. I, the only thing I would say is just the performance of Ed Carpenter Racing over the course of the month. We mentioned it. We talked about it a little bit around qualifying, but they had all three of those cars at a point in position to be running up front and in the mix for the lead. So I think that's just kind of worth noting just, uh, as, as drivers certainly doing their jobs. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm partial and happy for Ed to have a good finish. He's, he's, he is really good around this place and, and often it seems like he often ends up having things go sideways in the race. So uh, worth just, worth just noting in terms of the top five there. But, um, 
other than that, yeah, I mean, I, you know, just being in the race in terms of just giving you a feel for like what it was like being out there and, and being around, it was definitely one of those races where you're, you know, I've, I've done enough of these and, and been in and out of the car enough to realize over time that you really, there's a lot of times that you just don't know what's going on in the, in the, in the event. And this was definitely one of those races in the last stint when everybody's pitting and doing all this stuff I had, I was like looking at the scoring pile on every lap. Like, where are all of these? Like, there's guys coming out of the pits. There's guys, like, I'm catching up to cars that surely at some point were running up front, like Colton and and guys like that. Uh, so sort of a bizarre race in the cockpit that you had to just focus on what you were there to do and completely ignore who you were running around for long periods of time because uh, it sort of didn't matter, basically. You were often, there was, it was frequent that you were, sort of racing cars on track that you weren't actually racing but that it's still like this place it still matters if you can you know track position is a huge piece of how you're how you end up competing here a lot of these guys just looking at the at the sheet santino juan montoya certainly simon uh they they were able to just do that throughout the race and that was a big part of how they ended up further up the grid at the end um, a little shout out to JPM. I had some fun talking, talking with him on the, on the pit lane before carb day. He was, uh, he was just, I don't know if, I, I don't know if in awe is the right, the right way to put it. Cause I don't think it was necessarily a, uh, I don't think it was necessarily in the context of being like, you know, super impressed in like a positive way, but he was just shocked basically at the setup that Pato award was hanging on to, which was interesting to hear. He was just like, yeah, no, like I'm I, no, I'm not going to drive that. Like I've been, I've been doing this for long enough, it, but it was interesting. It, it, we kind of, you you, you sort of think that from the outside a little bit, but then to hear, to hear somebody with, with real knowledge of how to set the cars up and he's been at Penske, he's been at places. He's, he's obviously won, two Indy 500s. I mean, Juan Montoya must have the craziest stat line around this place. He's only done six, or this was his sixth or his seventh or something. He's won it twice and finished in the top ten like almost. He's wrecked once, I think. And yeah. done great in all of the... I mean, what's his average finish at Indy? It's super high. Um, but uh, just interesting to hear that little tidbit of feedback from within that team. From a guy, you know, JPM still a, a guy who throughout the course of his career, certainly, and I think still at his age now is on the, he's in the conversation for fastest hands out there. And, uh, and he was just like, yeah, there's, there's no way like we're, we're, I, I came into the team. I saw the setup. And I was like, I'm not going to drive that. So Craig, like we got to figure something else out. It was pretty funny. It's funny that because we've, we kind of briefly alluded to this on the pod, uh, one of the first pods actually about Pato and that situation because when Pablo did the Laguna Seca test at the start of the year with Aaron McLaren SP to get ready for the obviously Indianapolis road course race that he ran uh, a few weeks ago now. And he said, uh, I can't remember the exact word that he used, but it was along the line of, it was a joke, the, the steering trace that, that Pato was using yeah. Laguna Seca. And he basically said, you don't need to drive the car this way. It doesn't need to be this hard. Well, and that was actually his point when I was talking to him. Is he was just, he he was at, he was saying it really with the with sort of the within the context of uh, this is this is just crazy. Like there's no there's no reason to be driving the car like that. 
Like it's not in, in, in a lot of situations, it's not going to be faster. It's just, it's like on the limit just for fun kind of, uh, that was, that was sort of his, his take. So I thought that was definitely interesting and something to keep in our minds, I think, as we watch the rest of the season for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it was, and playing into that was, I asked Pato about this, uh, after his uh, Texas win, because, you know, I asked him about what JPM had said basically, and you know, how that kind of plays into how his season was, was, was getting on. And, you know, he basically said, that it's the most difficult car to drive in in IndyCar, the the Aero McLaren SB car, and it, it, you know he doesn't he doesn't necessarily always like the back end hanging out all the time, but that's how the car needs to be driven to be fast, and that's that's just how it is. And Felix Rosenquist kind of backed that up as well. So it's a difficult car to drive, and it's definitely that is going to be because Pato is only like a point behind Dixon in the championship now. So yeah. the road course form that they've struggled with a little bit over various kind of well, the street course and road course form has, has been a bit difficult to come by for them. And that's where the car's most difficult. That's obviously going to be a massive factor for the rest of the season. We're going to be talking about that a lot, a lot on the pod because he's just so in the championship conversation right now. And the, the, they can't really afford to squander the opportunity when you're one point behind Dixon after six races. You can't let that slip out your hands, can you? Because you don't get that close to Dixon very often. So that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch for the second part of the season. The only other thing I wanted to raise was we've not talked about Takuma Sato, last year's winner, so I thought it just we should we should briefly mention him. Obviously, Graham Rahal, his teammate, crashed out, and Santino ended up being the highest placed Rahal car. Um, he started nineteenth or worse in all three of his Indy five hundreds and finished in the top seven in all of them. So you know whatever you say about the guy, if you you know if you're a fan or if you don't like him for for things that have happened in the past, it, it, you can't deny how good he is at the Indy five hundred. He's been absolutely phenomenal in the three events that he's done, and you know that that's incredible. But Takuma basically took a bit of a risk at the end of the knee and stayed out on the for as long as he could basically hoping for a caution when he probably could have been in a top 10 um obviously we don't know yeah. we don't know how the car would have been on the last stint if they'd have made any tweaks to make it better but i think they basically thought that they were going to be at the back end of the top 10 and there was really no reason to finish the Indy 500 at the back end of the top 10 where they could take a risk and try and get that caution so I think they just gambled that was kind of the vibe that I got from the the kind of post the post race uh you know kind of discussion from from that team anyway so yeah so just to mention Takuma because he won last year um obviously fell back quite a way out of contention at the end but it was because he was basically risking that that strategy and and basically going for it so uh, that's the end of this week's podcast we have no race next weekend it's not one of those uh one of those years where we've got Detroit the weekend after. There's a, a nice weekend gap in between. So that'll be, I'm sure the teams will be loving that, to be honest. <laughs> um, so we'll look to have a special guest to join us before the Detroit race. But we'd love to have some listener questions for JR and I also next week. So we're happy to talk more about the Indy 500 next week because, like I said, we've only had an hour to, to kind of break down everything that happened in the 500 and that's never enough time is it you know I don't think five hours would be enough time but we're happy to dedicate more time if you've got questions about what happened so if you're unsure of anything that happened in the Indy 500 or you want to ask JR what conditioner he uses or how filming is going for John Wick chapter four then <laughs> feel free to hear us up you can tweet me at Jack Benyon B-E-N-Y-O-N or you can tweet JR Hildebrand you're just at JR Hildebrand aren't you that's me Awesome. So we look forward to yeah, simple. <laughs> we look forward to catching up with you next week. Bye.